0: Colloquium, Episode 9, Ice Reaching Like Fingers, Chuck Dixon on Winterworld. Welcome to Colloquium. My name is Marcus Ahn, and this is my comics creator interview podcast for Sequart. I recently had a chance to talk with legendary creator Chuck Dixon. His resume includes thousands of scripts for iconic characters like Batman, Superman, Green Lantern, Iron Man, The Punisher, Robin, Nightwing, The Simpsons, SpongeBob SquarePants, G.I. Joe, the list goes on and on. Along with artist Graham Nolan, Chuck co-created the Batman villain Bane. He was also an early pioneer in the movement for creator-owned comics. Along with the book we discussed for this podcast, Winterworld, Chuck has created fan-favorite comics like Law Dog, The Vanishers, and Seven Block. Today, Chuck is writing the ongoing Winter World series, which is also set to debut as a live-action TV show on Xbox. He's also writing a new graphic novel called Sword of Wood, which is currently on Kickstarter. Along with that, he's writing his third book in his science fiction novel series, Bad Times. I talked to Chuck about the challenges of surviving a frozen wasteland, taking Winterworld to TV, the temperament of badgers, and the fortunate translation mistake that led to walrus monkeys chuck can you hear me yeah i can hear you now oh okay <laughs> Whoa, what what's happened?
1: going on there i, I don't, don't know, know. <laughs> some bump in the ethernet
0: <laughs> <laughs> how are you doing chuck
1: pretty good how about you
0: Ah, uh, yeah not too bad well, thanks so much for being on my podcast. I mean, as someone who grew up with your comics, it's an honor for me to interview you. Well, thank you. Let's jump right into Winter World. Uh, for people who might not know what this series is about, how would you describe it to them?
1: Well, it's it's a dystopian future where the Earth is frozen over, and uh, there's never really a reason why or how that happened, but uh, it's set far enough in the future that no one alive remembers when the Earth is war- was ever warm, and uh, it's basically just frozen over pole to pole. The oceans are frozen. It snows all the time. It's bitterly cold, and uh, there's not a whole lot of people left.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, right now you're writing uh, the new ongoing Winter World series for IDW, but you actually first wrote Winter World way back in 1987 as an Eclipse miniseries uh, with the great artist Jorge Zafino. Can you talk about how you first came up with the concept?
1: Well, I you know I was always fascinated. I think we all are, or most of us are, with you know some sort of apocalyptic future story, and I always wanted to do one, but you know I was looking for the proper hook. Um uh, and then uh, some Argentine artists, the Villagran brothers, they came up to the United States. They were doing a lot of work in American comics, and they came up to the United States a, a, a lot and, and actually lived up here and worked, and they showed me uh, um, portfolios of all of these artists from Buenos Aires that they either worked with, knew, or who actually worked in their studios. Mm-hmm. And uh, the one that struck me the most was Jorge Zafino, uh, his pages and his samples. And I just wanted to work with the guy so bad. And I thought, well, this guy would be perfect for an apocalyptic, futuristic, dystopic story, but what would be the hook? And I thought the most natural hook for him because he handled elements and weather and organic stuff. So well, I thought, well, what if it was a frozen planet? And, uh, he did, he, I gave him some ideas. He came back with some samples that just blew me away. And, um, so we we wound up at
0: Eclipse. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what were his samples of?
1: Um, he I described the characters. Uh, the, actually, his first sample is the, the the cover of the of the trade paperback edition that's out now from IDW. Mm-hmm. Uh, that shot of of Scully and Ra Ra uh, moving through the woods. Uh, that was the first sample he sent, and uh, it was it was what I had in my head, uh, put on paper, you know, in a genius way. And uh from that point on we were, you know, totally on the same page, um, you know, you know, on the Winter World property.
0: Mm-hmm. So fast forward twenty seven years later and you're back writing the series for IDW, why did you decide to revive the book?
1: Well, I, I, I always wanted to continue the story, but I was reluctant because, you know, Jorge uh passed away a number of years ago and I, I wasn't as I, as enthused to do it without him, um, right. IDW reprinted the book and as well as the never before published sequel, and uh, there was interest. There's always been interest in the comic art community. Jorge is an artist's artist, and you know uh, if I meet a comic book artist for the first time, uh, invariably he'll ask me about Jorge Zafino. Um, but I IDW talked to me about continuing it. And they agreed with me. The only way to continue it is if we could get artists um, of the same caliber.
0: That
1: that that the book would the, the the art is so important to the book that we had to get you know seasoned pros. And 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 my caveat was we had to get seasoned pros who I knew were devotees of Winter World and devotees of Jorge Zafino who would get it and and want to try to capture that spirit. In their own way, in their own style. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so, you know, that's where we ended up. We've got this great roster of talent, um, you know, coming up, uh, for, for the arcs this year and then um, a lot of agreements for next year. So it's all top guys and, um, Zafino's, um, son and daughter, that's what convinced them to sign off on it was that we were, we would be committed to doing, you know, basically an homage to their father's art. In every issue.
0: Well, that's great. So you, so you've been keeping in touch with the family since he passed, then?
1: Oh, absolutely. Uh, his son, uh, Gerardo, is you know he's become a hell of an artist himself, and he's contributed some some covers. And I'm currently writing a prose novel of Winter World that that uh, he's going to provide illustrations for. So uh, yeah, I've I've been in contact, you know, because there's always issues because um, you know I own the property. It's a creator-owned property. I own it, you know, with with uh, Jorge's estate and heirs, um, you know, we're always in contact for business purposes, but, you know, also on a social level because, um, you know, I considered him a friend and, um, you know, his family are friends by association. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, that's great news that you're writing a novel. That's the first time I've I've heard of it. Of a yeah, novel you're going to break.
1: Something. You're going to break that news. Yeah. Yeah. We want to, <laughs> we, 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 we've got this Xbox deal going for an, an eight episode television event. I'm making air quotes here for event because I don't know what that means, but, but it's going to be a live action thing. And our, our game plan is, is to have, you know, you know, material out when the, uh, when the show first, uh, debuts so that there's, you know, printed material out. And I've always been, You know, wanted to toy around with writing a prose version. So we're going to do that.
0: And you've been writing uh, a book series anyways. You've been getting into doing novels the last couple of years.
1: Yeah, I'm a comic book writer, but. You know, I was forced by market forces to get into prose more. (laughs) (laughs) I wrote wrote six SEAL Team novels for Dynamite, and uh, I I told the publisher, basically, you're paying me to learn how to write a novel.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's the best deal you could get.
1: Yeah, seriously. (laughs) I, I, you know, I was paid for my education.
0: (laughs) Uh, Great. So, let's go back to IDW. Uh, Before – the ongoing series you mentioned that it got collected was it idw who approached you first about uh, collecting the book or did you go to them
1: well idw is a company uh, um you know one of their top guys ted adams i've known him since he was an intern at eclipse i've always had a great relationship with him and i always say that ted's one of the few guys in the business that i would trust on a handshake um and they're they're pretty much always my first stop for anything and um, they had reprinted Seven Block, a, a horror graphic novel that Jorge had, and I had done in the, in the 80s. And um, there was always an interest in doing Winter World. The only hold of was is that we wanted to print Winter C with it, which is the sequel to Winter World, which was done for Epic Comics but mm-hmm. never published. And um, so it, it took a while to uh, get the family to uh, scan the art. And, and, you know, get it to us and then assemble the book. But it, we, we had planned for years to collect it. And uh, my only um, input on the deal was that I, I really wanted a hardcover first because I knew, um, I, I, you know, all, every, like I said, every artist I've ever met wanted a collected edition of that book in black and white. And I thought, well, let's let's go for the hardcover and make it special, you know, because we know we have an audience there within the business who, who would treasure um, you know, hardcover edition.
0: Oh, and it's perfect in black and white, given that it's this winter world. It looks amazing.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's great to see his art. I mean, the original series in color, was, it was done well on everything else, and and, it, and the coloring wasn't as intrusive as coloring tends to be now, but but still, it's it's great to see, you know, his hand on, on all the pages. Mm-hmm.
0: Now, uh, Wintersea was collected, like you said. What happened with that with Epic? Why did it never get published back in the day?
1: Well, I mean, back when when Marvel sort of had its its implosion uh, in the late 90s, um, you know, a lot of things got caught uh, in the ringer and, and left in inventory drawers. Uh, I mean, we're talking about thousands upon thousands of, of pages and dozens and dozens of projects that never saw the light of day, mm-hmm. and Wintersea was one of them. And, you know, as a creator of a property, as soon as, you know, that enough time passed that they didn't do anything with it, the rights, all rights reverted back to myself and uh, and, and Jorge's family. So we were free to do with it what we wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and the funny thing is, is that, you know, until we were putting it together to publish in book form, I had never seen the entire thing.
0: <laughs> really?
1: <laughs> yeah, because it was to be done in two parts. And I saw all the art for the first part, but I had never seen the art for the second part. So, uh, wow. it was a big thrill. It was as big a thrill to me as everyone else to actually get to see that for the first time. But yeah, it was, a. I think Carl Potts was the original editor on it. And, uh, and, uh, you know, when he was, when he was, uh, laid off along with a bunch of other editors, uh, their projects were simply canceled.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about the, the lead characters in Winter World. You have uh, Scully and Wynn as they search for Wynn's parents. Um, they're a pretty unusual pair. They're far apart in age, and they have different outlooks on the world uh, they live in. Scully is this kind of um, gruff survivalist, and Wynn is this dreamer. But they've both been through a lot uh, in the book. How do you see their relationship?
1: Well, they've both had really extraordinarily horrible childhoods. <laughs> so, so they share that in common. And as much as Wynn is, uh, is remains optimistic and is a dreamer, she's, she's a realist as well. I mean, she's seen the way the world is. She's, she's not going to hesitate to act if both of them are in danger. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, I see it as, you know, this is someone that Scully can care about. He's never had many people in his life he can care about. Uh, so it, it's, it's a, it's a friend relationship. It's a almost a father daughter relationship, although the wind would object to that and does object to it mm-hmm. in, in the, the recent issues. Um, I, and it, it's a highly unusual. The, the only other relationship I can compare it to somebody asked me recently if there's any comparable relationship in fiction. The only one I can think of is, is modesty blaze and Willie Garvin, mm-hmm. where it's a male and female. And and it's a friendship. There's it's completely platonic. Always will be, and um, you know it's just a different kind of thing. I think that's I think it's at the heart of Winter World. It's what makes it appealing is is these two characters mm-hmm. and Ra Ra,
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, which we have to talk about. Yeah, you know the first thing I thought of when I read the book is uh, Dark Knight Returns. I thought of Carrie Kelly and Batman. Right do you plan on exploring any aspects of scully and wind's past before they met in this new
1: series well the the prose novel will be the beginning of scully's backstory from from his childhood on we'll find out where he got the name scully uh we'll find out why he got so good at working with machinery and 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 things like that and um so that's his whole horrible awful childhood and, and early adulthood in, in the first novel. Uh, when I don't so much want to go back. I mean, I may someday, but I don't have any plans to go back. She tells part of her childhood in an upcoming one-shot issue that's being drawn by Tommy Lee Edwards. Mm-hmm. So she, I think that's issue eight. She tells a little bit about her past and where she came from.
0: Well, but, she, and she doesn't remember everything.
1: No, no. She doesn't remember a lot. And, and Scully... Both of them make it clear that their lives, their early lives, are such drudgery that there's nearly not a whole lot to remember. Sometimes there's whole t- periods of time where it's just it's just day to day survival, and there's not really much to remember, except that it was awful. <laughs> <laughs>
0: and let's move forward. Let's keep that in the past.
1: Yeah, exactly, exactly. They both they both now have a goal, a shared goal. Um, you know, something to look forward to, which I think everyone in their life needs to be happy. Otherwise you go crazy. Right.
0: Well, you mentioned Rara and it's, he's one of the most unique characters in comics. I don't think I've ever seen a pet badger traveling with the main characters. So where did the idea for Rara come from?
1: Um, Jorge was so good at drawing animals. I knew I wanted an animal to be part of this. and and I, you know, as a kid, I loved the Rin Tin Tin and I loved Lone Ranger's horse. And I loved it when characters had animals that they related to. And it was something I missed in modern uh, pop culture, that, that nobody had a pet or nobody had a, a, you know, a pal who happened to be an animal. <laughs> so, um, you know, I I suggested a badger. And I was thinking of, of an American or Canadian badger. And Jorge sent back these marvelous drawings of a European badger, which was even cooler. <laughs> and he uh, makes him it, it, quite a bit bigger than a badger is. Uh, but I thought that's cool because... Uh, I, I assume in, a, in in a world like Winter World, only the larger animals would survive, and hmm. and the animals would you know, the ones that survive would breed more for for size than anything else. So that all worked out for me. And uh, he's just sort of turned to a character of his own. He's a, he's he's there when they need him sometimes, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but he's he's in his own thing. He's he's. I don't know if so much he's a coward but he often gets distracted and leaves them for extended periods of time but he he always shows up when it's time to go. <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, he's an animal. He's self-interested.
1: Yeah, yeah, he's probably a lot more he's probably got the self-interest of a cat but some of the loyalty of a dog, which I'm sure no real badger has. <laughs> I mean, he's not I don't I don't expect anybody to think he's he's acting like a real badger. <laughs>
0: I was going to say, does anybody have a pet badger? Because I've never even heard of it in real life.
1: No, I wouldn't want to have one. (laughs) That's for sure.
0: (laughs) So where did the name Ra-Ra come from?
1: Um, I wanted something simple, easy to remember. Naming these characters in in Winter World is one of of the most interesting parts of the process because I want to make them simple, easy to remember names for all the characters. And I don't know where I came up with Ra-Ra, but it just seemed like something. Larry Hama always used to tell me, if you're going to name a new character, name it something fun to say. (laughs) (laughs) That works. Yeah, it explains, certainly explains all of his G.I. Joe creations. Uh, (laughs) But, you know, have it it be something fun to say. And then if it's fun to say, people will remember it.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk a little bit about the environment of Winter World. It's this brutal, unforgiving landscape. It's a place where nothing seems to go right, where you never know where your next meal is going to come from. Can you describe uh, what this world is like for people who have to live through it? Is there anything equivalent to it on Earth?
1: Well, I mean, I mean, I suppose Siberia, um, you know, there are animals, you know, you can hunt, You can you can survive in that way. But of course, it's a it's a winter environment. Um, so game is scarce.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, there's the only trees or plant life you find are, um, you know, evergreen pine trees, which I, I suppose um, plant biologists would question how even they could survive in this environment, given that they can't be pollinated. But, <laughs> right. um, you know, let's skip all that. There's a lot of imponderables in winter world that I don't bother to address. Um, but, you know, they live by hun- they live by hunting game they live by hunting through the ruins for what they can find um because you know i'm i'm supposing that a lot of the stuff virtually got flash frozen so so a lot of food stuff still exists that are edible but even so they have to be careful um and then of course there are the people who eat other people so right. uh, they they that's the way they choose to survive but it's a it's certainly a difficult existence. Um, they can't even, you know, they can't even live the way that Eskimos live. Their, their environment just isn't, doesn't lend itself to fishing because there's no open water. Mm. Uh, except in the, the, the first arc, we see a very rare glimpse of open water. Mm.
0: And there is some technology uh, there, but there doesn't seem to be a lot of means of communication uh, in that world either.
1: No, no. There's no there's no radio technology or anything like that. But but as I hint in the first arc, the internet is still up, uh, <laughs> which which I'll I'll be exploring later on in the year. Um, so yeah, I mean the, the technology that could survive that has survived. But but things like uh, radio are very rare, mm-hmm. and um, you know uh, you know wins connection to the past is through books. I mean she's a compulsive reader. And and that's what she loots for his books. Right. And they're always finding things that from the past that they don't quite understand, like like Wins' unfortunate uh, encounter with some controlled substances in the, in the second issue. Mm-hmm. So, you know, um, yeah, it's it's not a nice place, and they're living off of basically the corpse of of the world we live in now.
0: Mm-hmm. I love the vehicle that they found in the the first issue. What, what kind of a vehicle is that with the triangle tread?
1: Yeah, well, there's, there's a lot of them up, you know, in the Yukon, Canada, Siberia, the, the, the triangular tread, which will basically go over anything, which can be put on any, I mean, you, you could take your current car and find nickel treads to put it on.
0: I'm doing that after this interview.
1: There you go. I, I, I don't, I don't think the local authorities would be pleased with you, you know, ripping up the streets with it. But, <laughs> but uh, you can do it. I mean, it is practical that it does exist. And, you know, so many of the machines that we see in Winter World are sort of cobbled together mm-hmm. from, from other machines and adapted for, for winter driving. <laughs> <laughs> or I should say all terrain driving.
0: Yeah. I know about that. I live in Chicago.
1: There you go. And they're also, they're also, you know, modified to run on anything they can find that will burn.
0: Awesome. So, how many people in this world are actually left? Do you have an idea of that, Chuck?
1: I I don't really explore. You know, uh, the, the biggest collection they met was in it was in um, Wintersea um, at Earthfire. Uh, they they run into La Nina, another settlement in South America that has you know a few hundred people. But you know, um, we will run into bigger settlements down the road. But mostly, the Earth is populated by pockets of people. Anywhere from a half dozen to, you know, a few dozen,
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Uh, just just living together, basically tribal. Right. And and a lot of nomadic types, you know, just wandering around looking for something better, but there's nothing better to be found. Mm -hmm.
0: Now, do you ever plan to get into the reasons for why the world frosted over?
1: Well, there's going to be, everybody's going to have a theory. (laughs) They run into (laughs) people all the time who think they know how it happened, and the theories get crazier and crazier. Uh, you know, everything from a curse from God to, you know, everything. And, and in the current arc, the um, the denizens of La Nina think they might have a, a way to turn it around. <laughs> 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 so, um, so, yeah, everybody's got a, a theory as to why it happened. But nobody knows because, you know, um, there's no record of what happened. Uh, and I don't want to get into it because I never wanted the series to be uh, political in any way or, or have a viewpoint. You know about the environment or the, the temperature <laughs> of the earth, which apparently is now a, a political issue. How how warm it is or cool it is outside. Yeah. So I, I wanted to avoid all that because I I'm not into turning off half my audience.
0: <laughs> now I, mean, I like that approach where you're just talking about you know what happened after and how people are surviving it. it kind of reminds me there's a show on HBO called The Leftovers where they deal with that. Yeah. Uh, all these people vanish and they don't go into why. Uh, they vanish. It's just like how are people dealing with it afterwards? And I just like that approach. It's more interesting to me than the, than the why.
1: Yeah, it's like that. It's like any good zombie story does not explain why they're here.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, who cares? You know, it's this. It's the scenario. There's that series. I watched the French version of it. The Returned, and they never really explain why that happened either. You know, people come back from the dead. You know, in the same way that they were alive. It's like okay, they're alive again. Mm-hmm. You know. And never really an explanation as to why that happens. You can you can project anything on it you want. Right.
0: So uh, as harsh as the landscape is, what really drives the book, like we've been talking about, is the interactions with people that Scully and Wynn come across. And uh, so far, they've met a lot of unsavory characters. Uh, if there really was an apocalypse of some sort, what do you think people would really do, Chuck?
1: Well I think in a situation like Winterworld where basically the world has become a frozen desert um, you know I did I've done a lot of reading over the years about nomadic people who've lived in Arctic circumstances or um, sand desert circumstances and they all live lives of great suspicion of anybody from the outside. So I think that's in the human nature mm-hmm. that if you're isolated long enough, you're not going to trust anyone you meet. And, and in in Winterworld, unfortunately, they they find there's a really good reason not to trust anybody um, because you know you're going to be an outsider. And Wynn and Scully are always going to be outsiders. They only have each other. Um, they're never and, and 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 you know time after time we'll see them trying to fit in, um, but it's just not going to work because that's simply human nature. And I think it says a lot, you know, because because the world's broken down into tribes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it's not a, it, 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 it's, it's, it's kind of like, you know, if you move to America from anywhere, you can become an American. If you move to France, you are never going to become a Frenchman.
0: <laughs> <laughs> the rest
1: of your life. So basically the whole world's become France. You, you can never, you're not going to belong anywhere.
0: Well, that's really interesting. <laughs>
1: so yeah, I mean, I, I, I like people, but you know, they can be nasty if you get more than two or three of them together,
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: especially if there's no food.
0: <laughs> oh. <laughs> I know I'd be nasty.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I get grumpy
0: while I'm <laughs> So this dangerous life, this nomadic life for and Wind, that's what's in the cards for them. There's not really a place where they can go to feel safe.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's periods of time when there's security, mm. uh, but it's fleeting. It's always going to be fleeting, or or even if it's not, there's always that worry in the back of the mind that this is temporary. Right. They're they're they you know they're they're suffering from post traumatic stress disorder from the time they were children. You know they're never going to be settled.
0: Right. That was a question I was going to ask. Like, how does this world where you have to make tough choices to survive, uh, and you have to do it a lot of times without hesitation, how does that affect people psychologically?
1: Yeah. It's it's what makes their relationships so important to them. You know mm-hmm. that they're the only ones it's not like they're the only ones who understand everybody in the world is in the same boat, but they're the only ones where they they feel safe with each other right
0: so winterworld has no fantasy elements to it uh, like a lot of post apocalyptic stories uh was it important for you to keep the story as realistic as possible
1: yeah the only the only oddity or I like to refer to it as an imponderable <laughs> was <laughs> in the first series um Second or third issue, I have um, Scully hunt down and and kill an elk. Uh, He comes upon a herd of elk, kills one, so he can eat it and use its skin. Mm -hmm. Well, Jorge and his translator had no idea what an elk was (laughs) (laughs) and apparently didn't have the means to find out. So Jorge drew these sort of primates, sort of like chimpanzees with tusks. Uh, which, which stunned me when I saw the artwork. I was like, this isn't what I asked for. And then I thought, but they look so cool. And I thought, well, I'm never going to be able to explain how these creatures exist, so I'm never going to bother. So they're there. So that's the only thing close to a fantasy element. Otherwise, uh, to me, everything is something that could actually happen.
0: That's funny, an accidental mutation.
1: Yeah, yeah. Which, like, okay, how did this happen? You know, a bunch of chimpanzees wandered into a nuclear power plant or lived there for a few years, and this is what came out.
0: <laughs> Maybe they can tame one, and it can be a pet like Rara.
1: Yeah, there you go. There you go. I mean, they did. They looked great. Yeah. I mean, I may have them come back. I do have a story upcoming with a lot of baboons in it, but, but not those particular kind of apes. Oh,
0: that's interesting. I wouldn't think they would be well-suited to the, the winter.
1: Well, it gets cold in South Africa. They they live through pretty cold climate. I, I don't know about cold and wet, but mm-hmm. but baboons are not tropical animals right. like like most uh, higher primates. Mm-hmm. And you have those um, monkeys in Japan. They certainly seem real happy. Oh yeah, running around in the cold. So I figured you know uh, if a baboon just never lost its winter coat, they could get along.
0: Uh, okay, so the series is definitely focused on survival. So is survival something you are experienced with? How much are you into braving the outdoors?
1: Well, I used to hunt a lot and and do a lot of hiking in remote areas and stuff like that. So I know what it's like to be really, really cold and really, really hungry. <laughs> 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 you know, enough to know I don't want to feel that way anymore. I'm not uh, going to seek that life out. Uh, but I'm by no means any kind of a prepper or anything like that. I mean, that stuff interests me, mm-hmm. um, to read about I and mean, to see some of the mental patients on TV who do it. But, um, <laughs> but, but, I, you know, I think we all think, well, I, I, no, I don't think we all think, but, but a lot of us think about what would happen. How would we make it? You know, even if we were to just become homeless, you know, uh, how would we get by? What would we be willing to do? Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I, I think if you look around at the world in any kind of a rational way and have ever had times where you had to do without, you, you kind of think that way or, or have those sort of idle fantasies.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, what's the coldest place you've ever been to?
1: Uh, I was on the top of Mount Katahdin in Maine, which is the highest point in Maine. Hmm. It's 4,000 feet above sea level. And when we started climbing, and this was September, it was 72 degrees on the ground. When we got to the top, way above the tree line, it was so cold that I actually watched ice forming on the rocks. <laughs> because the temperature dropped so fast, you could actually watch the ice reaching like fingers across the rocks. Damn. That's the coldest I've ever been.
0: How long were you up there for?
1: Uh, only as long as it took to get that (laughs) help out. No, I was up there. I mean, once you got up there, you were up there. So, uh, back down to the tree line was, you know, an hour or more, Mm -hmm. but of course it got warmer, the lower you got. And, uh, but, but still that was very cold and very, very windy and very dry.
0: (laughs) Uh, I guess I won't ever go there then.
1: It's a beautiful – I've been up there three times. Only one time was it that awful. Uh, but, you know, the last time I was up there, I was on what they call the knife edge. You have to walk the knife edge to get down, and it's a pathway about four feet across, 4,000-foot uh, drop on one side, 2,000-foot drop on the other. And I said, okay, this is – I said, God, if you let me get across this, I will never <laughs> do this again. <laughs> wow. Wow.
0: Uh. That reminds me, I, I uh, took a trip out to Utah, and um, I had to drive my car on these switchbacks over a mountain, and they were incredibly narrow. And it was pretty scary, because when you would look down, you would see all of these cars that had fallen off <laughs> in the ditch.
1: <laughs> you didn't need any signs reminding you to be careful.
0: <laughs> no, thank God I was driving a Geo. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> But it was good and bad because I had to put it in first or second gear the whole time. But, you know, a Geo doesn't have a lot of power. Right. But it's small. So. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so you had some room.
0: Yeah. it That was insane. And there's no room for another car to go past you. So if somebody comes down from the other side while you're going up, one of you's got to go back. Wow. And you can't turn around. You'd have to go in reverse. Wow. <laughs>
1: At that point, I think I'd just shove the car off the edge and walk. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, imagine that—you know, I, you know you're, you're basically parallel parking forever. Yeah, you know, I with, wouldn't with want to. The, it. With a you know multi-thousand-foot drop to one side.
0: No, your chances of dying significantly increase if you're going to back down the mountain. Um, all right, so um, you mentioned uh, the politics of global warming, and uh, in, in your letter in the back of issue one, you mentioned you weren't interested in getting into that uh, in the story. Uh, but why did you feel like you had to make that disclaimer in the letter?
1: Well, at the time that Winterworld first came out in the eighties, um, the, uh, the the environmental alarmists thought that that Winterworld was going to be our future, not um, you know the amazon rainforest Mm -hmm. globally uh so i wanted to make sure that you know i wasn't lumped in with the crazy saying the next ice age was coming that this was just a work of speculative fiction and i wasn't saying one way or the other what the future of the earth was going to be like Mm -hmm. and um and then as it switched from the next ice age to global warming you know and became even more of a hot issue uh you know i was even more you know uh anxious to make sure people knew I'm, I'm not making any kind of a political statement here because mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't like you know it's escapist fiction I don't, I don't want to put a statement of any kind in it
0: mm-hmm. um well you know politics is something that uh seems to be on your mind a little bit lately because you wrote that piece for the wall street journal yeah that talked about how you know your conservative views cost you jobs in comic books and uh, you know you used to be a fixture at the big two but you haven't written for either in a while so I don't really want to talk about the politics, but is this, for lack of a better term, blacklisting something that hurts you personally and professionally now?
1: Well, yeah, it is. I mean, it is a blacklist. I mean, and, and, you know, some editors recently denied it on the internet and said, yeah, it's, it's not a blacklist, but he'll never work here again. Okay. Well, isn't that a blacklist? <laughs> no, <laughs> because what, what other reason would I not be working there? Um, so you know they've sort of made a vow to themselves that I, I won't work there again, and and they feel compelled to keep it.
0: Mm-hmm. It's sad because you wrote some great great comics for both companies.
1: Well, it sort of forced me out into the world of creator owned, which you know is better in the long run for me and and for my family anyway. Is is to own the material I'm creating mm-hmm. because um, you know they're they're only going to look out for you creatively as far as it suits their interests. Right.
0: And that's actually my next question. The good news is that you seem to be putting out a lot of new work at various publishers. You've got the film deals in place. You're writing novels. Um, There aren't a lot of writers with your experience in comics who are still around making uh, relevant books. So how do you feel about the way your career path is going now?
1: Well, I, you know, I prefer I'm, like I said, I'm a comic book writer, first and foremost. I never wanted to be a novelist. I never wanted to write a screenplay. And, you know, I love comics. Um, but um, but I want to stay busy, too. I've always been prolific. I always thought, you know, I would look at Stan Lee's name on all those books when I was a kid and thought, well, that's the speed these things are written at. <laughs> so so if I can't match his output, I'm not going to be able to make a living. So I sort of set that as my goal. Also, early on, I met the creator of The Shadow. Um, Walter Gibson, and, and he told me his writing habits. And I thought, wow, if that's what a writer has to do, then I better, you know, huh. I better get in shape. Uh, <laughs> so, um, but yeah, I mean, you know, like I said, market forces have have made it so that I've gone into prose, and uh, which is attracted to me because you know now with the e-books and things like that, there are, there are simply no gatekeepers. Right. uh in that area that i that I can write whatever I want to write and publish it in the form I want to publish it in, you know not that i not that i don't want to have an editor, I have an editor, mm-hmm. but you know i don't have someone saying well we're not interested in that right now
0: yeah you're putting out the novels yourself
1: yeah yeah the the bad times books uh, I do my own through Amazon exclusively for right now, and uh you know they they bring in a monthly income mm-hmm. uh and the more of them I write, the more of a monthly income that'll be and there's there's no one telling me what to write or that it's you know giving the usual excuses why they can't publish it right it's It's me taking all the chance on my own I'm taking all the risk, and that's fine with me
0: right. Well, I'm glad you went into the other areas, because if you were used to writing uh, at a certain speed and, and putting out a certain amount of content, if you didn't do that, then you would, you would feel probably kind of lost.
1: Oh, yeah. I'd certainly be driving my family out of their minds. <laughs> so.
0: Well, let's talk about the art in uh, Winter World. Uh, we have uh, Butch Geis is uh, drawing the first arc of the series, and his style seems to fit really well with the story. What does he bring to Winter World, and how did you come to work with him on the book?
1: Well, Butch and I have been friends for years. We worked together quite a bit, and he was, you know, uh, he was on my very short list of guys I wanted for the first arc, and he was the first one to say yes. You know, his schedule had opened up uh, just before I asked him, so it was perfect timing. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, he was a big—he's um, a big admirer of Jorge, and he, he enjoyed Winter World, and we like working together, so it all seemed like a perfect fit, and. Um, you know, he had a he had a when when we were both working at Crossgen, his daughter was about Wynn's age and as precocious and opinionated as Win. So I knew he'd have that part of it nailed. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I forgot about Crossgen. You, you did um El Cazador, right? Yes, oh, I love that book.
1: Yeah, that was a lot of fun. That was a lot of work, but that was a lot of fun. Oh yeah.
0: Well, you also mentioned there's going to be uh, new art teams coming on the book. So are you going to have a rotating set group of art teams? Or are you going to be getting new art teams every arc? What's the structure going to be like?
1: It's not really going to so much rotate. I've got a long wish list of guys that I, I'd like to see you take a shot at a Winter World arc. Uh, next up, we have Thomas Tom, Uh He's another Argentine artist who I didn't know until I, we asked him if he wanted to do an arc that his mother did the translations on my original scripts. <laughs> and he used to beg, uh, he was like 13 or 14. He used to beg his mom. Can I go to the studio with you when you take the, the scripts? Uh, and he would watch Jorge work. He would spend the day there watching Jorge work. So his connection to Winterworld is even greater than I thought it was before. And uh, he's already um, got two issues drawn. They're gorgeous.
0: Now, was his mother responsible for the walrus monkeys then?
1: Probably. She was responsible for that. (laughs) I won't blame her. She's probably a very nice lady, but did not know, had no clue what an elk was.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So, who else do you have coming up on Uh, the series?
1: Well, Tommy Lee Edwards is doing an issue right after Tomas, just a one shot issue uh, where Wynn tells a little bit about her past. Uh after that we have a Steve Pauls. Uh he's an artist I worked on, uh, Man with No Name and Lone Ranger.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: uh he and I are currently doing this sort of wood project that's on Kickstarter. And then following him, we have a one it's a one shot issue divided between two artists. It'll be um a, a win story, a wind centric story drawn by Steve Epting, and oh, that's a great. A Scully-centric story with baboons drawn by an artist named Pasquale Frazenda, who's Mm -hmm. not very well known here Uh, He's an Italian artist, and he is just um, jaw-droppingly amazing, and I still can't believe he agreed to do this story. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, If you get a chance to look at his artwork, Uh, he does a lot of artwork for Benelli in Italy, a lot of Westerns, and uh, just absolutely amazing.
0: Is that how you found him, because you were reading the Westerns?
1: Yeah, I, I love Benelli Comics, and I came across a 265-page a text graphic novel he did set in Argentina, and uh, I just fell in love with it. And I found him on Facebook and just, you know, gushed like a like a big weepy fanboy about how <laughs> amazing I thought it was. And then since then, we've been in communication, and I finally thought, hey, I'll take a shot. I'll ask him if he wants to draw a Winter World. Mm. And the thing is that, that in order to get these guys, because most of these guys have hack schedules, I have to write really far ahead so they have extremely long deadlines. I mean, Epting and and Frizenda both have a year to draw 10 pages. Um, Tommy Lee Edwards, I think I gave him six months for his issue.
0: So how many issues have you written, Chuck?
1: I've written the first year already, and uh, I'm I'm anxious to get into the next year. Hmm. and, and, you know, the, the first arc in the next year. But, yeah, 12 issues are, are scripted and, and all being worked on simultaneously.
0: Well, that's great. So it will definitely come out on time.
1: Yeah, yeah. And, and, and you know, <laughs> and, and you know, thank you to IDW because that's a big financial burden to have that much work being done all at once.
0: Oh, yeah. But it's good prep for the TV show, which we'll talk about next. But, that you know, that's going to be coming out pretty soon. You're going to have a lot of material that people could go to if they want more Winterworld.
1: Yeah, exactly. That that's the publishing game plan, you know, because IDW, you know, their their first and foremost concern is the publishing end, and they want to have it. You know, that's the reason why I'm doing the novel. I'm hopefully have maybe two novels out and four trade paperbacks, and the original collection when the when the show hits.
0: When's the first novel going to be out?
1: Um, it's being solicited for February next year. Okay, that's pretty soon. So I'm I'm a little over half done with it.
0: And uh, Winter World's an ongoing series. Uh, do you yes. have uh, an end in mind, or is this an open-ended uh, book for you?
1: No, I never – I'm you know, I'm on a book till the wheels come off. So <laughs> till they tell me, hey, you got to stop this. Uh, so I really don't have a conclusion. I can't imagine what the conclusion would be. I mean, I, I can keep writing. I've got ideas for a long time.
0: Yeah. And even if the wheels come off, you can always put some triangular tread on them. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> Nothing will stop this book. <laughs>
0: all right so uh winter world uh as we've talked about is being developed as a digital tv series with xbox right um can you talk about what stage uh, the show is in right now um there's a
1: series outline uh i've been told there's a first episode script it's not really a pilot because eight episodes are approved um so we're not really waiting on a pilot um i don't know if i can talk about the talent the the guy running the show, um, I I actually like his stuff. <laughs> Which is good, <laughs> so, um, but it's it's a you know it's a done deal. It's going to go into production. It's all just you know not in everything together right now because Xbox because they're not Hollywood. They don't act like Hollywood. There's not all the usual delays and mm-hmm. drama and 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 quibbling. Um, they're committed. It's budgeted, it's scheduled. And it's it's going to be live action. Uh, it's going to be eight hour long episodes, and uh, the budget. It's good. I mean, it's a good budget. They, they, they'll it'll look great.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, is, are all the episodes going to come out at once, like a Netflix show, or is it going to be like a weekly
1: thing? I have absolutely no idea. I don't know what X, because Xbox. I mean, you know, Netflix was all new territory. Now Xbox is kind of brand new, all new territory mm-hmm. because it has dedicated subscribers who simply own a machine. Uh, but it has more uh, potential customers than cable because more people own Xboxes than have cable industry, and then worldwide it's even bigger. So I have no idea how they're going to release them. Are you going to buy the season? Are you going to buy it per episode? I, I imagine they'll do a per episode thing because mm-hmm. um, the only way to see the darn thing is to is to get it through Xbox.
0: Well, and they are subscribers to Xbox for online, so I bet they're –
1: yeah, Probably get it as well. Well, they, uh, yeah, yeah, exponentially. That's an even larger. I mean, it's a, it's an enormous building audience that we really only have to get a certain percentage of um, to make this thing work mm. as as an entertainment thing. And, and I'm betting it's going to look good enough and, and be good enough that they'll, uh, you know, will will they'll want more.
0: I mean, it's got to be pretty exciting for you to know that your creation is going to be translated to the television medium, but also the fact that this is a brand-new endeavor. That's pretty exciting.
1: Well, you know, that and, and to be partnered with IDW, who I know, they, you know, we are partners. They they really they have my back. Um, they set this deal up. Uh, it's a deal unlike any other uh, comic companies ever had. Uh, mm-hmm. It's not a, it's not a license thing. It's not an option thing. They bypassed all that. They're part of the creative process of getting this on the air, uh, and that's all you know. Very comforting and good, and you know makes me feel a little bit more optimistic about this than I usually am about any kind of entertainment deal.
0: Now, are you involved in the development at all uh, as a producer or writer?
1: I'm I'm sort of hands off because you know I've been around the block. With, I don't want to see the sausage made basically so you know if I end up writing an episode of this if they they want to do, yeah I, I'd like to do that that would be neat but um, but other than that now I'm not like going to be visiting the set or pestering them because people say to me, you know well you know it's your creation what if they change this what if they change that? well you know if they change it they're gonna have to change it but but all indications are that they're not going to make many changes. Um, or any changes they've told me about because they like it the way it is. Microsoft likes it the way it is the Xbox people like it the way it is and and I'm producing as much material as I can so that you know I have grist for them right so they can look at the stuff and say, well yeah okay, we, we can use this, we can use that because I you know maybe maybe I'm just a big egomaniac, but I gotta think that nobody in the whole world's ever thought harder about this than me
0: <laughs> <laughs> I hope not <laughs> yeah
1: I mean you know I mean i the the people working on it all seem very interested, but uh, you know I gotta believe they're not as driven as I am.
0: <laughs> Well, I mean, and you have a really good partner in IDW. It sounds like you really trust them, and they're going to be involved in, you know, helping the show get on the air.
1: Yeah, it's very transparent, very open. I mean, I just have a terrific relationship. There were some, you know, bumps at the beginning, and we worked them all out, and they're just great people to deal with all the time. All right.
0: Well, great, Chuck. Well, those are all the questions I had for Winterworld. But before I let you go, I wanted to talk briefly about uh, your latest project, Sword of Wood, which is currently on Kickstarter. Uh, it's set to become a feature film and a graphic novel. Uh, you want to talk a little bit about uh, what the story is and and how did it get set up as a film?
1: Well, Sword of Wood is it, it's about it's set during the time of the First Crusade and uh, an English knight kind of gets homesick and he's worried about his holdings you know he's a lord he has a manor he has people to count on him and he has his family and he basically misses them all and uh he leaves the crusades with his squire to return home um only to find that uh this like evil army of the undead has swept through his area and taken every living thing with them people are either dead or gone um and his army is rampaging across the landscape as an army. It's not just some rabble of mindless monsters. And there's some direction, and uh, there's some general leading all of this. Um, so he and his squire go off in pursuit of this army because he doesn't know if his his wife and children are being held hostage, or dead, or have joined mm-hmm. these um, these you know creatures. So um, it's a little. I I, I I like to say it's not a bunch of guys with swords wandering through the woods hunting monsters. It's it's more it's a medieval epic with a horror hook because this army lays siege to castles. There are there are set piece battles hmm. and everything else. Um so there there's there's quite a bit more to it. And the secret of who who is um commanding this army and everything else. It's 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 pretty cool to reveal.
0: Now who's doing art for this?
1: Uh Stev Paul's. Um, because he'll do, you know, you want to find an artist who's going to do the homework and, and be as interested in getting the, um, period accuracy as close as possible. And, you know, he nails it. I mean, the artist is gorgeous and rich and, and just looks like that period. Mm-hmm.
0: Is this a period in time that you have a affection for?
1: Um, in a sort of a toy soldier fashion, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> the, 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 you know, the costuming is so neat and, and the characters are, Uh, either wholly invested in their cause or conflicted about it. Uh, So there's a lot of layers there. And um, the idea of Europe basically depopulated of all of its military forces. Mm -hmm. Uh, They all just marched off. Uh, That always fascinated me. I mean, what happened when they were gone? I mean, we know what happened when they were gone robin hood and, you, know, <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you know brigands <laughs> and bandits just, just just immoral brigands robbing everybody <laughs> as much of a hero as robin hood is made of today i mean well, basically he was uh, one of the lawless uh so you know i was thought well wouldn't that be a ripe environment for someone really evil to to take advantage of
0: mm-hmm. now what is the the deal with the movie
1: well, it's like everything else in Hollywood. The Kickstarter campaign makes it sound like the movie's a done deal, and you'll be watching it at the multiplex next summer. Well, that's not the way things <laughs> work uh, these days, especially these days. They want to they want to see a comic book first. As crazy as it sounds, they want to see that comic book done, uh, so they can take a look at it and get an idea of what what it would be like as a movie. So, so getting this graphic novel done is key to all the rest. It's like the first piece of the puzzle. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Um, Anybody who knows anything about Hollywood knows there's no money. There's no finance. You can't get <laughs> a dime out of anybody to do anything. Even if they, no matter if they tell you, Hey, we want to be in the Chuck Dixon business, but we don't want to put out any money to do that. Uh, so, you know, I'm on Kickstarter hat in hand trying to put together the, the, uh, the budget to get the artwork done to pay a stev to finish the complete graphic novel. It's Mm -hmm. going to be like 100, 120 pages.
0: So did you pitch this to uh, the studio? And
1: then they said, well, I I showed it to a couple of agents I knew and they, they, they liked it and they took it around. And, And Scott Mednick who, you know, worked on 300 and all these other, you know, huge budget movies. He, he took a, a very strong liking to it, and uh, he still likes it even now, he, even a few years after we showed it to him. <laughs> he remembers who we are when we call, uh-huh. uh, which is a miracle in Hollywood. Uh, so, you know, it's still it's still alive in his mind. But you know, they people want to see something, mm-hmm. and these days, what they want to see is a comic book. Right? It's as crazy. As, I mean, I can't get my head around that, but that's that's the way it is.
0: Well, it's such a popular medium right now, and...
1: Well, I I think they look at it as, like, the the magic pill. Mm -hmm. If it's a comic book, hey, there must be something about that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's true. (laughs) That's the way
1: they think. Well, it's been working for them, you know? It's been working (laughs) for them, so...
0: Well, and it's great for you, too, because once you print it, I mean, you own it, so...
1: Yeah, yeah, it's a creator owned deal. So yeah, it's in publication. It's, it's, it's out there and people are reading it and hopefully enjoying it. So that's, that's what I'm about. You no, know, I, I mean, you know, if it becomes a movie, yeah, fantastic, but I'm really about it becoming a, becoming a comic.
0: Right. That's great. So where can folks go to contribute to the Kickstarter and how much time is left on it?
1: There's only 11 days. We are nowhere near our goal. Oh. <laughs> we really need everybody. Uh, if, if everybody can just put in a dollar. Uh, but, but the, the, uh, yeah, it's just, it's sort of wood Kickstarter. You can go to Kickstarter and put in sort of wood. You can Google sort of wood and my name. You can Google my name and Kickstarter, you know, there's just a million ways to get there and, um, you know, it's up and, and yeah, we're not, I don't even think we're 25% to our goal.
0: I contributed.
1: Well, thank you. It's appreciated.
0: Yeah, no, I'm, I'm looking forward to it.
1: I don't, I don't know how people make these Kickstarter. I really I have no clue. And I'm not running this one. They, my agents are running it. I have no idea how people make the kind of money they make on Kickstarter because I've never had a bit of luck with it. But let's hope this time's different.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, I hope it kicks into high gear um, before the end. All right, great, Chuck. Well, thank you for taking the time to talk about uh, Winter World and Sword of Wood. I'm really looking forward to reading more of both. I'm looking forward to uh, more Walrus Monkeys and Baboons. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's what you need to do to hollywood look i got two words for you hollywood walrus <laughs> monkeys <laughs> yes.
1: Yes. you thought plenty of the apes was big
0: <laughs> <laughs> where do you see them with tusks <laughs> uh, uh, that was a lot of fun chuck thank you very much
1: well thank you for having me i enjoyed it
0: okay great i'll uh send you an email when uh you know it's gonna be going up on the site.
1: And I will link everywhere I can find to link.
0: Great. Right, well, have a great day, Chuck.
1: Okay. You too. Talk to you again soon. Yeah. All right. Bye. Bye.
0: Thank you for listening to the ninth episode of Colloquium with Chuck Dixon. You can find out more about Chuck on his website, Dixonverse.net. He's also on Twitter at Dixonverse. Help Chuck by contributing to his latest graphic novel, Sword of Wood on Kickstarter. The campaign ends on September 20th. For more about Colloquium, visit the Sequart Research and Literacy Organization website at sequart.org. Along with the cast, you'll find reviews, documentaries, scholarly articles, and many unique books that discuss and analyze your favorite comic book series and creators. Big thank you to John Raffano, who wrote and performed the Colloquium theme song, John is the guitarist for the post-rock metal band Sonhet. You can listen to the band's music at sonhet.bandcamp.com. Until next time, chums.